listening to Ding Dong Darkness Time Season 2, Stephen King Boogaloo. I gathered several of my most well-read friends together to discuss many of our favorite works by the master of the macabre himself. If you like what you hear, tell the world. In the meantime, let's talk some scary stories. Oh, and beware the spoilers, folks. They're a doozy. Hello, everybody. It's Allison Dixon here, along with my buddy Chris Armstrong. As promised in the season finale, where we discussed Maximum Overdrive, we're coming back bearing a couple of bonus goodies. This is a discussion on two of our favorite short stories from Stephen King's stellar 2002 short story collection, Everything's Eventual. The collection features 11 short stories and three novellas. And frankly, there isn't a single entry in it that isn't worth reading. In fact, I think I've read each of the stories in this book at least three times as well as listened to the audio version. So I'm ready to roll with this. I would talk about this entire collection in depth if we had the time. But as I said, this is a mini episode, so we won't be doing that. If you want to hear collection picked apart in full depth, go listen to the Night Shift episode I did with Terry Lynn Coop. But in this case, Chris and I decided to each feature our favorite story from this collection. So I'm going to go ahead and turn it over to Chris because we just want to get this show right on the road, man. That's right. And I'm really excited about this story. It's one I've talked about a lot and have wanted to explore a bit. And it's called Man in the Black Suit. And I came to this story, I think I mentioned on this podcast before, and on 80s High, my other podcast, that I took a fiction writing course in college. As an elective, I was just like, I want to take a class. And our textbook for the class was on writing by Stephen King. And coincidentally, there are two connections I have to this story, uh, as well as the one that Allison is going to talk about, 1408, (laughs) which is so great. So we'll talk about this connection here in that. So On Writing is our textbook, and we get assigned Man in the Black Suit as one of the stories that we go through. And I loved the professor I had for that. He was like this guy in his late 30s, early 40s, beard, glasses, just very enthusiastic about teaching. And he was so excited for us to read this story. And it just grabbed me in a very just visceral way that I mentioned on the episode where we talked about the trucks short story. This is another one where you had this very compact contained story that just feels real, this world. And it has the benefit of being set in the early 1900s. So it has this mystical kind of quality to it where times were simpler and it wasn't the hustle and bustle. You're in the country and it's just a simple story of this kid just wants to finish his chores and go fishing, hopefully get a couple fish at a castle stream. That's it. That's the premise. That's all he wants to do. But oh my goodness, does the story go sideways? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it truly does. I, I love how this story so beautifully blends the literary fiction side of King's sensibilities with his genre fiction Mm. side. To the tune, I think people in the literary community have largely shunned Stephen King uh, as kind of a genre hack. And in fact, he kind of sells that image of himself openly everywhere that he goes. But not many genre hacks win the O. Henry Award or the National Book Award. Mm -hmm. And 
genre hacks don't typically get their stories published in The New Yorker, <laughs> which is where this story appeared originally in 1994. And what's so funny is he saw this as a throwaway story. He didn't yes. think it was all that great. And here it gets all of these accolades, which is just funny that it's another way to show writers don't always know their strengths and the value of some of the works they put out there. Right. I, I am often, and I think we're all often struck similarly uh, by this, perhaps on social media, for instance, we put a lot of effort into, say, writing a post on something that means something to us. And, you know, it gets like four or five likes and hardly anyone comments on it. But then you just have some kind of throwaway, silly thought, and then it kind of goes mini viral. And you're just like, what the hell? This was just this was a nothing thought. This happens to me frequently on Twitter. I was gonna say, or you blog about the Alpha Smart Neo. <laughs> yes, yes, I had a blog for a very, very long time uh, that I don't really have anymore. In fact, I it doesn't even exist anymore. But I did two entries out, out of hundreds and hundreds of blog entries that I spent a lot of time on. I did yes, a review of a writing device called the Alpha Smart Neo. And I also did one that was a Peruvian uh, chicken recipe. Oh, that sounds good. Uh, yeah, it was really good because there's a place here in uh, Dayton, Ohio that we go to called Nelly's Chicken and they just make the most amazing rotisserie chicken. And they have the whole method of doing it. And so I researched it, found out largely how it's done, posted it on the internet. Those are my two biggest blog posts. <laughs> Nothing that I ever wrote about the craft of writing or life experiences or any other thoughtful breakthroughs I ever had on that blog nope. stacked up to those two things. So I can see in some ways how King thought this was a little throwaway for him because, yes, it feels familiar in many ways, uh, there are a lot of King hallmarks here in terms of this, the description of the setting. He writes rural mm. stories so beautifully. Yeah. I, I keep mentioning the story 1922 I, I because I really want people to go read it if they haven't read it or just watch the movie on Netflix because it's fantastic. Also starring Thomas Jane, who is just a regular in the King verse, but it has that rustic horror feel to it. My husband and I recently went on our road trip driving from Ohio to Las Vegas, saw a lot of just open, desolate country. And it felt very unchanged. It felt very much from that world. And there was a haunted nature to it. Yeah. So lends itself so well to that it feels very king. But then, yes, the, the boy goes fishing. And what does he encounter, Chris? He encounters a man in the black suit, which he quickly realizes is the devil. And I should say that there are two very important influences for this story being made. And one of them is a Nathaniel Hawthorne story called Young Goodman Brown. Are you familiar with this story? I am familiar with the homage to it or the reference to it, but I have not read the story. Nor have I. So a, a recap, if you don't know, and I did not know, it's a short story, as I said, by Nathaniel Hawthorne, published in 1835. And effectively, it's about Puritan fears of evil lurking everywhere, even in the hearts and minds of good Christian communities. And so basically, Goodman Brown recently married to a woman named Faith. <laughs> a little on the nose there, Nathaniel. But anyway, wanders into the woods one night, sees strange happenings. He starts to question his faith in the people around him, even losing faith in his wife, Faith, uh, along with all humanity. And he becomes really embittered and suspicious and kind of cynical and wary. And the story concludes with the line, and when he had lived long, 
and was borne to his grave, they carved no hopeful verse upon his tombstone, for his dying hour was gloom. Oh, wow. Dang, Nate. You got to kick it up a notch, buddy. That's some ding-dong darkness time right there. It really is. I, I will have to read that. That sounds right after my own heart and, and feels like a like a emotionally true kind of story. I think we see people yeah. like this, right? Absolutely. Go through life becoming more and more disillusioned. It seems a common theme, and it's interesting to see that discussed in a story from the 1830s. Is that Thank what you goodness, said? goodness, almost wow. 200 years ago. Yeah, Jeez. yeah, exactly. Jeez. This is, uh, again, the more things change, the more, more they, they stay. <laughs> yeah. And, and if you read the story, you definitely see a lot of parallels between this journey of young Goodman Brown and our main character, Gary, who's this nine-year-old boy. Mm-hmm. The other one is... This one gives me chills. He said that a friend of his told him that his friend's grandfather came face to face with the devil himself in the form of an ordinary man. So his grandfather, not too dissimilarly, out in the woods, encounters this random guy. And as he's talking to him, is like, this man is the devil in disguise. Now, whether that's actually true or not, and this guy just wasn't like a super creeper or whatever... The idea of that is still terrifying because this grandfather certainly believed it. And if imagine you're just sitting there and he said his grandfather did everything in his power to not react and be very normal and not let on that he knew. And even if you don't think you're going to meet the devil on the street, I think we've all been in a scenario where all of a sudden you're like, this person is dangerous and I need to not react. I need to not let anything on. I'm just going to finish this conversation and be on my way. I think we've all had an encounter like that with somebody who feels dangerous or is dangerous. And so that one just, it kind of gives me chills when I think about it. And the way that he reveals this man, because the, so young Gary, after uh, grabbing his creel and his fishing rod and, and after doing his chores and he heads over to the river, we get a little bit of establishment at that point about his mom and how she is and how he had a, a, a brother, right, who died of a bee sting. Yeah, he had an older brother. Again, uh, another trope for, of Stephen King, dying of bee stings. Goes back to misery, yeah. right? Um, right, right. Yeah, his older brother is is stung to death by – he's allergic and is killed by these bees. And his dad has to carry him back to their farmhouse. And he's got like a shirt draped over his brother's head and – It's just this nightmare scenario where, you know, just this small little encounter takes away a life of a child. Uh, Dan is the brother's name. And so his mother, rightfully so, is very concerned for her now living child, her only living child, Gary. Yeah, pretty much telling him, be careful. Yeah, she's like, don't go past the fork in the stream, right? Where are you going to go? Not any farther. And, you know, it's this very nurturing, caring kind of uh, sense you get of the mother. And he even has this thing where he's like, I remember it so clearly. She's standing there in the kitchen. There's a curl of her hair hanging by her face. The light is hitting it. It looks like a filament of gold. And he just has this very vivid vision of his mother, which yeah. we'll come back to. Um, but it's just this great 
like snapshot flashbulb memory that he has as he's talking to his mom and he's going to go off on this adventure. And the thing I love about this too, this varies uh, in a lot of ways from say the body, which is, you know, another rural kind of adventure yeah. story, but told in a later period where all the boys in that story come from very dysfunctional and broken homes. This home feels very loving. These, both That's of true. these parents love their son. Which King doesn't and... always do, right? <laughs> no, no. In very fact, rarely. I think that makes it a kind of a, a welcoming shift yeah. uh, in the dynamic. So, you know, he, with all that in mind, he goes off and starts catching fish and he catches some some big ones. Uh, he catches a, a couple of good fish. I think fish, he catches like he... a trout and a brookie. And yeah, he's got his little yeah. creel and you can see he's kind of doing the measuring and everything. So he's like picking up what his father had taught him about catching fish. And I think he even guts some of them. And like he's... He cleans them out. Little guy gets tuckered out. <laughs> yeah, he's very tired. So he lays down on the side of the brook and he falls asleep. Yeah. Uh, takes a little nap in the sun. And then when he wakes up... You'd think it'd be to a man standing over him. No, it's a bee. On his nose. On his nose. Which is almost more terrifying. The story has set up this tiny bee so much that you're now so afraid for this kid because you're like, Does, is he allergic like his brother was? And it's just this, right. you kind of seize up and he's sitting there looking at it and he's not sure what to do. And you sit with that for a while, but then suddenly he hears a clap. Mm-hmm. And the bee drops dead. And then he looks over and sees the man in the black suit. And the vision of this man, because immediately you know he's not of this world, yeah. right? Yeah, right. Uh, yep. Yeah. Uh, mostly due to the fact that his eyes are bright orange, like they're on fire. Pale skin, claw-like fingers. And doesn't he smell of sulfur? Doesn't he, like, didn't he describe that already? I can't remember if that was in the he initial does. He's like, description. His body smells like burnt match heads. And King uses this term a lot about the aroma baking from the suit. He uses the term baking. So it's almost like this just rancid loaf of bread that's permeating from his body. And yeah, again... People always say the devil and demons have the smell of sulfur on them, right? And that's what Gary is smelling. And he's getting this sense from this man that he's quickly realizing is no mere man. And and I love the the juxtaposition of a man in a black suit with burning eyes in this very peaceful, tranquil, little gentle river flowing through green sunshine. (sighs) It's just such a start. You can hear it. Contrast. You can just oh, you can absolutely. hear the trickle of the water, maybe a little breeze of the leaves on the wind, and you just see this man, and he refers to Gary as "Hello there, Fisher boy." You know, he always calls him Fisher boy, and he has nothing good from the. I oh mean, no, really? There's a little bit of charm that he comes out with initially, but well, it's very brief. He he immediately starts coming out with some really disturbing news. Yeah, he kind of says, like, hey, I saved you from the bee, unlike your brother who wasn't saved. And he's like, I have some bad news for you, Gary. Your mother's dead, stung by a bee. She she passed a fatal flaw onto Mm -hmm. your brother. And maybe a little bit of your father's strength saved you. So he's just going into this whole just chilling story. And as you're hearing this, you're like, did this man this creature, this devil, kill his mother. And now he's going to come here and gloat to break this news to this child. And what's so interesting is he has both this like knowing 
omniscient kind of presence, but also a very, not childlike, but childish yes. approach. Yes. Because at one point, Gary wets himself because he's so terrified. And the creepiest thing this man in the black suit does is he bends down and smells it, the urine smell. And he's like, he's he does this sing-song thing, opal diamond, sapphire jade, I smell Gary's lemonade. Yeah. Ugh. Which again, it's, just it's like the bully kid at school mm-hmm. says that, yeah. not this devil incarnate. And to me, it adds something even more terrifying than if he was oh, just yeah. this like, I will pull you to the burning hells asunder. You know, nothing like that. It's just he's like the embodiment of a child bully and this creepy man, not man. <laughs> it reminds me. Of, do you remember in Men in Black? When the bug is in the Edgar suit, like in the yes, <laughs> oh, big time. It's not, not in the same comical way, but it's almost like this demon trying to be a human and failing miserably. That's hilarious. That's the second reference this show has had, by the way. In the Hearts in Atlantis episode, I compared the uh, low men and yellow coats. The low men, uh, I compared them to the Edgar no suit for Men in Black. I'm, that one hasn't released yet, so I haven't gotten to hear that. That's hilarious. Yes. Oh, I look yeah, forward to that. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I love that reference and I love any any time we get to see it because that's such a, a good evocative comparison. Yeah. And and we really see that come to life when, well, first of all, Gary doesn't really believe him, doesn't want to believe him. Yeah. He's very much has faith in his parents and immediately senses the evil in him, you know. But and, the man and, knows things that a stranger shouldn't know. And I think that's where the doubt starts to creep in. He doesn't want to believe it, but this man, this guy knows all. And again, this is such an inner, a theme that King plays with so much about that turning point in a child's life between innocent and not so innocent, that losing of that childhood set of blinders right where everything's good and safe and and whatever and then there's always that thing that happens that encounter that tragedy you know whatever and this right here for gary is that moment where he is about to shed the last of that Mm. innocent childhood and yes caused by forcing you to doubt everything you've ever believed about your family um and the world itself you're encountering the devil and then, the, and then the imagery gets even more surreal. It does. I, I do want to say, though, he's he's taunting him in a way that reminds me a lot of Pennywise taunting the children. Yes. Oh, I thought of Pennywise as well. Right? That's like a it's very this good point. menacing, tormenting kind of thing where, you know, Pennywise does it because it salts the meat, the children's fears. And in this one, you just get a sense that this this demon is getting his kicks out of making this child just twist his stomach left and right. I wrote this down. He said, she made the most wonderfully awful noise. She wept as she died. Isn't that sweet? Mm. Like just this terrible language. Didn't you say something about the dog coming along and licking the tears off her face or something? I forget that he may have. It's Yeah, the dog. and Oh, oh, oh. And the dog's name. Candy Bill. (laughs) Another freaking Bill. (laughs) No more bills, Steve. No more bills. Stephen Stephen King and all his bills. Yeah, am I right? Yeah, bills, though. Oh, yeah. Oh, man. Oh, yeah. But yeah, you're right. So this is where it starts to turn a little bit surreal, where the, the Edgar suit starts to melt, <laughs> if you will. A little bit. So what happens? A little bit. So uh, Gary wants to get away 
And I think what doesn't he offer his uh, big fish over? Let me tell you how he puts this, because this is just the most terrifying thing. I'm starving because he kind of changes the subject. I'm going to kill you and tear you open and eat your guts, Fisher boy. That's right. So he's taunting him about his mother. And all of a sudden he's like, he just turns this corner. And at that point, yeah, you're right. Gary grabs one of the fish and kind of throws it at him. And he does this like big fish and he talks about how his voice goes into this like inhuman register that's really deep as he sees this and what happens next he shoves it whole down his entire gullet and his neck expands he's almost like a snake yeah eating like a a big rabbit or something like that yeah his jaw is unhinged like his mouth just sort of falls open and this is the part where he talks about his gullet blazed red like his eyes the heat pouring from him like a fireplace. And he begins to cry bloody tears. Blood. Yes. Ugh. Yeah, yeah. There is something so horrifyingly unreal. It's like something you would see out of one of your own nightmares. I, I Full nightmare territory hmm. here. And it's at this point, I think, does Gary starts to see... At this point, his Gary runs away. Like, yeah, he's so he sees his opportunity to get the hell out of there and starts running. And the man in the black suit, as he's swallowing this fish, is like, You can't get away, Fisher Boy. It'll take more than a trout to fill me up. So basically, he's running up this stream embankment, and right on his heels is this mm-hmm. guy. And his mouth is still kind of contorted. And he can yes. still smell that awful smell. And it's just this nightmare scene of this child trying to get away from this creature. Yeah. And he starts to get away and thinks he's made it some distance. And he turns around and it says that the man is right at his heels. And that just Ugh. every time gets me. It's like the the slasher movie from the 80s where Jason's right behind you and you think you've outrun <laughs> him and outsmarted him. And finally, he kind of pulls himself up on this bridge and flips himself onto it and takes off down this the road and manages to outrun the devil himself. Exactly. And oh. and then most of the way back to the house, he runs into his dad. Yes. His dad was going to come down and meet him to fish after he saw a man about some cows, essentially. And then he runs into his dad just and he just starts sobbing like, mom's dead. Mom's dead. I, you know, man by the river told me. And his dad's like, no, I was just at home. The yeah, cell she's fine. happened early half hour ago. She's fine. And like Gary just can't believe it because of who he's run into. Mm-hmm. And he's like, I have to see mom. And so they end up going back. And his dad starts to have some suspicions that maybe Gary's covering up for the fact that he didn't have his creel or his fishing Yeah, like pole. he lost some his stuff. Yeah, and, and he's yeah. like, did you fall asleep and maybe had a nightmare and Gary just really can't bring himself to say, I met the freaking devil. <laughs> right, right. And and there's so many doubts already must be played in his head because, yeah, once he sees his mother, then well, oh, poor kid. I, as, you're, you as I'm reading this, I don't know if he's going to actually see his mom or not. That's the effect of this story is this whole time I'm like, she's fucking dead. It's the devil. Of course he like, killed her. They will get back together and find yes. her dead. I think I remember having that same feeling when I first read this story. Yeah, it's like the yeah. story leads you there. Plus, it's Stephen freaking King. You're just like, of course she's mutilated and mangled or her face is all like purpled and disfigured. And you yeah. get back and she's there, normal as can be. He was just tormenting this poor child and he, he embraces her and she's like, what's going on? And, you know, finally he just... 
this massive relief. I can only imagine being in that scenario and just seeing your mother, this this woman that you had just had this striking vision of, and she's there. She's alive. Oh, yeah. And in that relief is so palpable. And then the the minute that his dad says, we got to walk back down there now. We're going to get your creel and your rod. And because Gary doesn't want to go anywhere near that Nor place. Nor does he want his dad to. Right, yeah. right. And so before they go, he gets the family Bible oh, yeah. to take with him. And his dad's like, your mother will kill you if she sees she's deep done this. But yeah. okay. Hang on to you that. Know? Yeah. Because it's interesting. This is a this is a devout Christian family. Mm-hmm. And it's funny. Here's the opportunity to have their faith kind of almost validated in a way, but he's doubtful, like all we all would be, you know, as an adult. And it it kind of shows again that juxtaposition between the childhood belief and the adult lack of it, you know, that skepticism. But one of the most haunting elements of the story, Mm -hmm. because I mean, we were both adults when this came out. I was an adult when I read it. And I was definitely on dad's side in that in that sense. And I would be I think if my kid came to me like that, I'd be immediately thinking of the logical explanation here so it's so chilling whenever they get down to the creek and they find what isn't it like a yellow patch of grass so basically there's lush green and it's this yellow patch and the dad kind of smells it and gary's still up on the bridge and he's like i bet he smells that burnt match smell and he collects the creel and he's coming back up and he finds the fishing pole and sees another yellow patch and that's where he's like oh you caught a second fish because gary kind of fibbed a bit and said he caught one and he's like yeah and the dad comes back up and you can tell he's kind of looking at all this stuff and finally he just throws the creel into the creek and is like it just didn't smell right yeah, and you and it's never stated, but you just get a sense that the dad understood in that moment something awful happened, and right, he's like, "Let's get out of here." Not being in his head, you can only imagine both what he experienced and what it might have called to in his own memory, right. and you know what made him kind of come around to believing Gary in his own way, and. It kind of goes on from there, just in the sense that because Gary is an old man narrating this story, he's writing this down. I believe he's in a he's in, in a nursing home. He yeah. you know kind of went on and had a family and 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 all this, but he's alone now and very very haunted, knowing that he's nearing the end of his life, and you know he's so worried about encountering the man in the black suit again. Yeah, he has this great line where he's like, he realizes he's done nothing wrong to fear the devil, but yet he came. You know, it's this whole idea. It's like, I haven't done anything really wrong. I lived this good life. And, you know, I think there's even a mention that he got his mother to go back to church at some point. And so you get a sense that he lived this great Christian life. He's like, I've done nothing to fear the devil, but he showed up Mm -hmm. and who's to say he won't come again. And it's just this really just goosebump kind of chilling feel that we end on. And such a a great little story. Oh my God. It is. It is a a pinnacle of like this quiet horror because the, the realness involved in you can spend your life doing good and devout things and following your faith and, and, and all this and still it doesn't, there's no guarantee. And that is a a chilling thought to be left with. And he did it beautifully. I think King, again, wove his own spirituality into this story in such a real way that really makes you want to discuss and ponder a lot of those things. So 
Um, it, it is worthy of all the accolades that it received and, and, uh, and sorry, Steve, it's a great story. Um, except our accolades. Wanna... Uh, um, and this, in this collection, by the way, is so, hmm. as I said in the beginning, it is full of so many great stories. Do you have any honorable if you're... mentions that people should, if they had to check yeah. out, should te- check out? Absolutely. Before we dive into 1408, because we got a little more to discuss on that Mm -hmm. one, uh, I would say All You Love Will Be Carried Away is this very powerful story about suicide, to be frank, Mm -hmm. um, and disillusionment and and all that. And if you're a fan of The Dark Tower, that's a novella in the middle of this. The Little Sisters of Aluria gives you a great little side quest for Roland, Mm -hmm. uh, the titular or the not the titular, the hero of uh, the Dark Tower series. Lunch in the Gotham Cafe is a stunningly weird story about a, a husband and wife. They're going through a divorce and they're they and their lawyers are meeting in this cafe for lunch. There's a character in that that's kind of reminiscent of the man in the black suit. Oh, interesting. In fact. Uh, yeah, yeah. It gets a little over the top crazy. Um, very haunting story. LT's Theory of Pets is another fantastic one. Honestly, I could I could go on and on about this uh, collection. Oh, the road virus heads north. Uh, this haunted painting—it's terrifying, mm. absolutely terrifying. So, definitely check this out. I have read the hardcover multiple times, but it's on Audible and very well read. And King himself narrates a few of these stories, and including the one that we're about to talk about here, uh, which is again fourteen oh eight, which King considers his the ghost at the haunted inn yes. story. Yeah. It actually, again, uh, tied to on writing, it was an appendix piece in on writing as a little writing exercise that King was presenting to show how drafts evolve as you go along the storytelling process. And then he decided that he would develop it into a full story. It intrigued him, uh, to say the least. And that's the bit I wish I remembered from when I took that class, because this was the other connection I just learned about. And I was like, oh, my goodness, I don't remember that being in there. I do actually... Um, yeah, because it, it, it's the way he described the bar whenever uh, Mike Enslin, the main character, walks into the hotel right. and all the details that he describes in that hotel lobby. And so this story, um, once King had it written, it a- appeared first in audible in audio form in a collection called Blood and Smoke. Those and it's a collection of three stories, all three of which are in this collection. Mm. So we have uh, In the Death Room. Lunch at the Gotham Cafe, which I already mentioned, and this one. And it features a character named Mike Enslin, who writes nonfiction books based on uh, his experiences in multiple like haunted, famous haunted houses, haunted graveyards. Like, what is it? Ten nights and ten haunted houses, ten nights and ten haunted cemeteries. Yeah. And, you know, we've all seen books like this, right? Uh, For for instance, like the Haunted Haunted Ohio Ohio books. I was just going to say, there's like... I don't know how many there are now, but I remember there being like at least so four many. haunted Ohio books when we were growing up. And it was like, yeah, I know this place. Oh, that's near my hometown. Yeah, those were so much fun. I would love to write a series like this. I oh, think yeah. uh, just the thought of going to spend the night in some of these places, like in the story he talks about having slept on um, in Jeffrey Dahmer's old house um, uh, next to H.P. Lovecraft's grave. Yeah, yeah. And Hey, by the way, listen, if you want to hear about spelunking and uh, old abandoned places, you should listen to the season one bonus episode on Ashmore Estates. Yes, instance. indeed. Yes, indeed. <laughs> I honestly, we could have spent the night in there. That would have been interesting, huh? Um, oh, goodness. 
So Mike has this thing, though. He writes about all these things, but he doesn't believe any of it. Yeah. Because he has never had a paranormal experience. It's like he's intellectually intrigued by it, but he's also skeptical that it's a thing. Because, like you said, he's gone to so many of these and he hasn't experienced anything. So his writing style, and you get it through his dialogue, and it works in the movie as well, which I know we'll talk about, where you just Mm -hmm. get this kind of, um, it's not quippy, it's not, it's sort of little witty comments, right? Like, is that how you would describe it? Oh, for sure. Yeah. He's very quick-witted. He has an answer for everything. That's true. That's a good way to put it. And he came to the Dolphin Hotel Determined to get in this room, 1408. Now, you know, they were fighting him all along the way on giving him this room. Well, Mike is a, you know, New York Times bestselling author. He, you know, has a lawyer and his employee who quoted a a civil rights law uh, going back several decades that states that if the room's vacant and the customer wants it, you have to give it to him. And that is, in fact, an actual law. And in fact, the reason that he probably would have gotten that room, even if uh, it was considered dangerous, is that they would have to use the uh, reasoning that it's haunted by ghosts to deny him. And that's just not a good excuse. Like the, I, I read like a, a whole thing saying that, yeah, he probably would have been able to get in there based on that law. When he's talking to Olin, who's the hotel manager, who's... They have a very long conversation, almost a third of this story. This is honestly my probably my favorite part of the whole thing. It's a great exchange because would you say it's one third of the story? Yes, I would say. uh, Yeah, a third of it is basically what's it? Gerald Olin. What's his first name? Uh, Oh, Gerald Olin. Yeah. So he's basically every way possible trying to convince Mike to not stay in that room. And it's interesting to your point about like the the law of it is Mike actually brings it up at one point where he's like, why didn't you just make it your own residence or assign it Mm -hmm. a residence to somebody so you didn't have to rent it out even if no one stayed in it? And Olin has some uh, good explanations as to why he couldn't do that, but he had considered it because uh, once again, he's doing everything in his power and they're having this really great back and forth conversation And Olin has read his books and he knows his style. And what it really comes down to is he's like, you know, you're talking about ghosts, which were people. He's like, this is not a ghost haunting. This room is something altogether different. Yeah, there's no spirit in this room that that is of this earth. And and what's interesting, too, is little bits of dread really hit you because what Mike comes in with knowing is the, the suicides in the room, which... There were like 12, right? right? Over a span of 68 years, which is a lot of suicides. But then Olin brings up the natural deaths, mm-hmm. 42 of them, in fact. Or no, yeah, it was like 42 deaths total. I think there was like, there's some differentiation of, between that and the it, movie. It's a little something... fewer in the short story than what's in the movie. Yeah. Like the numbers are slightly off. But yeah, it, it's um, a handful or it's a lot for sure. So like seizures, heart attack, stroke, you know, all these natural deaths occurring and somebody drowned in the story. You mentioned somebody drowned in a bowl of soup. Yeah. That, that's actually in the movie as well. Same thing. And of course it's mentioned. Why is it called 1408? Because it's on the 14th floor, but only because they call it the 14th. It's actually the 13th due to the old superstition of the 13th floor. Yeah. And by the way, Chris, have you ever noticed that? Have you ever noticed a, a thirteenth floor missing in a hotel elevator. Oh, most buildings. So, as listeners may know, I live in Seattle and I work downtown. And they were building this new building. And on the the way they build these buildings, the ele- elevator shafts get built first, 
And so this building across the street, it was just like the main central corridor for the elevator shafts. And they had numbers for the floors. And it went 12, 14. That's And incredible. 12 was a big number in Seattle because 12th man, it's the whole Seahawks thing. And so the 12 was like a giant 12 for that. But then it went to 14. And I was like, wow, still. And the 2020s, we're still doing this. Okay. I noticed that in New York uh, when I visited. I went in several high rises there also missing 13th floors. Oh, yeah. And I mentioned in the episode with the mist, I constantly look for rooms 1408 in buildings that I go to. Uh, it's become one of my favorite things. In fact, in fact, I found something in my in my fact hunting on this that uh, due to alleged paranormal activity, the Emily Morgan Hotel in San Antonio, Texas has sealed one of their rooms 1408. Wow. So I need to do some research on this room. It might have to be like a like a ding dong ditch episode Ooh, at some point if it, if it proves juicy enough. Oh, yeah. Very intriguing. And I love how Olin has scared. He's gotten under Mike's skin a little bit as he's telling him all these things about what has happened in the room. I love too how he talks about when they go to clean the room because the room gets a light turn, as they call it, every m- once a month. And how they send uh, people who are close that get along with one another and to do it in pairs. And they're always supervised. But then he talks about how one of the people who went in there to clean went blind. And then like once she was down the hall away from the room a little bit, her vision came back. And there was like a set of twins that would clean the room, like two hotel chambermaids. And one of the sisters, she died young of like early, early dementia, and heart, she had a lot of heart troubles yeah. and a lot of health issues. Yeah. And so he talks about all this and, and Mike finds him in spite of himself becoming a little, little afraid. His skepticism is still there. You can see it creep in, especially when the natural deaths come up. I think that's where you start to see a little crack in his armor. And... He at least acknowledges for sure that Olin believes what he's saying. Because he's like, oh, this is typical. I've been to these places before. They tell a good story. It sells rooms and, you know, it's a big attraction. But he's like, no, Olin really believes this. And just the way that Olin delivers the information encounters the kind of snarky comebacks that Mike has. He just has a way of almost disarming him. And then again, the natural deaths come in and that's where you see Mike like, I mean, he still wants to go. He's still not going to be deterred, but you see just that little seed of doubt. And Olin comes at it, too, from a place of deep respect for Mike because he's read Mike's work. He read um, one of Mike's earliest works before he got into the haunted location biz. And, uh, you know, because Enslin tried to be a real, a quote unquote, real writer at one point. He wanted to be a poet. I think that's only in the um, movie. No, it's, it's, it's mentioned in the short okay. story. Okay. Yeah, it's ve- mentioned very briefly. Not quite. Not to the same extent. The movie goes more deeply into it. But Olin, you know, says, why are you doing this? And you don't really believe any of this. And and in fact, he tells uh, Enslin, you know, Mike, he tells him, like, you are the worst kind of person to go into this room because you have no belief whatsoever. But it's coupled with the fact that Olin tells him that nobody's ever lasted more than an hour, really, in this room. So this is, if I were hearing this myself... Knowing, like, I'm generally quite skeptical of this kind of stuff. But if I heard all these stories and all this stuff, like, dumped on me, I don't know, man. I don't know if I could go in there. I mean, I, w- I would probably just step inside, leave the door open. <laughs> and, like, <laughs> and peek in leave. a little bit. Well, <laughs> yeah. and, and Owen even expounds a little bit, too, when he's saying that his skepticism or disbelief is a liability. He also says that maybe the reason you haven't seen spirits is because your disbelief is actually a benefit. 
Yeah. And so he's like, maybe you didn't experience anything because you are a skeptic. But he's like, in this case, it's going to have the exact opposite effect, that it's somehow going to trigger this room to even prey on him. And he kind of describes it as a room of poison gas. Yes. And he's like, yes. you know, if you go in briefly and you hold your breath, you can make it out okay. And he's like, that's how I've been able to go into that room as much as I have. Or um, they call them C and V, the the sisters. Yeah, like how they were able to kind of do it because it's just in and out. But he's like, if you stay the whole night, once again, no one's ever made it past like, what is it, an hour or something? Or I can't remember. Or is that, is that more the movie? Now I'm trying to remember. He mentions about an hour in the book, okay. but the movie makes it much more of a strict uh, timer based thing. We're going to get to another part of the story now that probably scares me almost more than anything. Because at this point, Mike has said, thanks, but no thanks. I'm going up. Olin escorts him up the elevator. He's got an old timey key because electronics don't work. Yeah, mag cards do not work. So Mike leaves the elevator after, again, last plea. Please, for the love of God, don't elevator door closes. Mm. Goodbye. So Mike starts his walk down the hall. And I love where it says that his problems with the room began before he even entered it. Because he's standing in front of the door. This freaks me out every time. The door is crooked. It's canted just slightly to the left, but just in a way he describes it as like how you would see in a movie, like if they're trying to show someone is sort of like mentally unstable or something like that. And then he looks away and then it's straight again. (laughs) I would lose my mind just from that little moment alone. Those tiny little details. such a subtle thing, but it's really unsettling. It reminds me a lot of, I reference this a lot because it's so well done, in The Ring. Mm -hmm. Yes. There's nothing outwardly creepy about the movie. It just makes you feel off. It's an unsettling set of images. And what I love about this story is it's not boogity boogity boo. It's very much things just being off or odd or weird. And it kind of builds this growing paranoia and sense that things are not right and it kind of sucks you in and we're going to get to more of it this is so good yeah and so what proceeds to happen because mike actually spends about 70 minutes in the room and he has a little handheld tape recorder and this is a narrative device that was so inventive oh, this is great i absolutely love the way king portrays and i this. forgot about this too right right this is so good so as mike hits record on his little handheld recorder and he's narrating into it we have mike's dialogue but then king sort of the narration jumps forward and says but what was actually played on the tape is just him saying one or two things it's basically like of the 11 minutes that was captured when his tape recorder was recovered is very unsettling and it builds this whole thing before you even hear the things he says where it's like People don't want to listen to it. They can't get the whole way through. They want to stop. And it's just this very odd set of things that he says. And so it kind of breaks away and then comes back very seamlessly. Mike has a little cigarette tucked behind his ears, sort of a little superstition thing. He used to smoke. And then his brother, also a smoker, died of lung cancer. So Mike keeps that cigarette there as sort of like, he called it like a break glass in case of emergency. And he has his Hawaiian shirt. That's his other good luck charm. Yeah, his his lucky shirt. That's right. But in one part of uh, one of the things he says into the 
the tape recorder that makes no sense. He was like, my brother died. Actually, my brother was eaten by wolves on the Connecticut Turnpike. Yeah. Like, I just got goosebumps actually saying those yeah. words because it's so randomly dark and messed up. And and then he says, why would I say it? Like to himself, why would I say that? And then he records himself. It was later recorded him saying, I need to get a hold of myself. Right. Um, although it's he has no indication that he knows that he's saying these things, right? Yeah, you simultaneously get this experience of what was recorded and what he is experiencing. He's in this completely dissociative state yeah. where what he's seeing and what he's relaying are two totally different things. It's like his brain and his body are on two different tracks. And the way King captures oh this and the narration is so good and that's even before we start getting to the actual room like the elements of the room itself i love that he he compares it to being stoned on bad dope mm. he starts to have these visual hallucinations and at first he and in the movie this is made a little more apparent but i think in the book he he's also like maybe i have been uh drugged or or maybe this is all olin's doing mm. you know you know, he put this suggestion in my head. He has a sense that the CCTV, they're just laughing at him in the hallway. Like, yes. they're, yeah, they're playing a little trick on him and they're just having a laugh at his expense. You get that paranoia in both. It's a little more um, overstated in the movie. But yeah, you definitely get it here, too. For instance, he gets into the room and he's going through and it's a pretty basic room, but it's very like uh, the colors are a little garish. You know, he talks about like there's a still life of fruit yeah. uh, painting on the wall and how the way he's talking about it. It's again, some some of those like weird phrases that he uses and like definitely like looks like it's ro- like fruit rotting in the sun. That's what it looks like because the, the color orange features very heavily yes. in this almost like a visual motif. And there's a breakfast menu on the nightstand next to the bed. And every time he looks at it, looks away, looks back, the languages change. First it's French, then it's Russian, then it's Italian. And then it's gone. And then it's gone. And then it's replaced with a woodcut of a wolf eating a screaming boy's leg. And he talks about like the the sort of halty jerky like motion of it almost like you're looking at like a f- like a flipbook oh, yeah. animation oh god okay so and then the patterns on the wallpaper also uh shift and warp and the paintings start to change there's a wo- oh, god there's a woman and this comes kind of pops up a little later because it wasn't there before but it was like there's a picture of still life of a woman that grows increasingly grotesque mm-hmm. The more he looks at it, where she's like topless all of a sudden and she's got blood coming out of her nipples. I mean, there's all these things. And then later on, again, that herky jerky animation, she gets up and like runs away into the painting. But she has like cannibal teeth too. It's cannibal teeth. Ugh. Yes. Her her teeth are filed into points. That's right. He has a lot of tactile imagery as well. He says the dust feels greasy and slippery like silk just before it rots. And then he's like, what does that even yeah. mean? I don't even know what that feels like. Because he doesn't want to touch the bed. Yes. Yeah, the bed is like terrifying. He's to like, him. I'm not and you can only imagine. <laughs> mm-mm, mm-mm. And he doesn't want to touch the wall. He f- he fumbles for the light, and he says that the wallpaper felt like old dead skin. Ugh. Yeah, yeah. And then as he's walking around, he said, "This is the best word." His shoes are making a smooching sound, like mm-hmm, they're sticking. Mm-hmm. And there's something about smooching sound. You automatically know what that means. 
even though it kind of doesn't make sense, you're like, nope, I know exactly what you're talking about. Anybody who saw uh, Nightmare on Elm Street when they're going up the stairs. stairs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The immediate thought that I had. It's not quite as pronounced, but you get a sense that almost like the floor is trying to suck him in. And yeah, it's just yeah the tactile and the description and the imagery. Again, nothing here is boogity boogity demons and monsters. It's just off, 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 off. Yeah. So often, then increasingly threatening because then the phone rings mm. and this voice comes through. And the what it says, it seems very nonsensical at first because, like, the voice itself doesn't sound human. I, the way I love the way he described it as uh, a pair of hair clippers that have learned oh, to talk. Geez. So good. And the dialogue, like, this is nine, nine. We have killed your friends. Every friend is now dead. Mm. This is six, six. And he's like going through these. And apparently it's referring to like the number of people who died that were killed. And but every friend is now dead. Again, that's kind of a Dark Tower reference. Um, Mm. In fact, this this whole room could be theorized to be part of the the tower multiverse. Yeah. I also love the way he describes the way the room starts to melt. Yes. Around him and taking on these Boeing. He called them Moorish. But so if you think of like a like architecture that has like a lot of curvature, like a like an old cathedral or something like that. The floor kind of goes concave and he says the um, the walls bulge like there's mouths behind it. Oh, <laughs> so creepy. Again, it's like a really bad fever dream yeah. is what this is turning again, into. Everything here. being bathed in yellow orange glow, which in his mind, he's like, it's like tango light. The kind of light that makes the dead crawl from their graves and dance. Again, nonsense. Did you get a little bit of a Deadlights vibe from this? Oh, very much. Very much. If you're not familiar with it and the entity behind the clown, there's this idea of these orange dancing Deadlights. And that's what draws you in. And, Mm -hmm. you know, you mentioned the connection to the Dark Tower and the multi uh, metaverse. Metaverse? Metaverse. Yes, that's right. Mm-hmm. Which I, I think tangentially, or at least in some part, the it creature is a part of. And this felt very, very much. much in that vein. It was almost tantalizing and drew him in and eventually causes him to do what? In pure desperation, because when he first gets into the room, he notices a book of matches yeah. in the ashtray um, and he pockets it. And he manages to pull the matches out and notices the you know clothes cover before striking because it's a really old school book of matches and he uh lights the entire book of matches and sets his shirt on fire and it's this old polyester shirt right well at this point he starts burning himself and the room starts to lose interest in him because he tried to open the door before and it was locked. So right. he couldn't get out. And even though the door was unlocked, it just wasn't opening. But once he was on fire, it was like the room's way of saying, I don't like cooked meat. I think that was that was the phrase used. And so he stumbles out into the hall and there's another hotel guest who's coming back from the ice machine. And he sees a man on fire and then he just dumps his ice on him and and uh, and the doors open. And I love this. The guest from the hotel looks very tantalized by that light mm-hmm. coming from inside. Because by this point, it's a blazing orange sun. And he compares it to a trip he took to Ayers Rock in Australia, the Australian Outback. Oh, that's right. Yeah. He also said the wall began to open up to another world where something terrible approaches. So again, you have this almost like 
merging of worlds, this place yes. where two worlds are kind of at a meeting point. And it's almost like, again, cosmic horror. Very you know, this so. is very, very Lovecraft. And so Mike says, don't go in there. The room's haunted. And the second he says those huh. words, the door slams shut. And so... Basically, the story is mostly over at this point. You have a little, a, a brief denouement where Insulin talks about his his uh, writing career is pretty pretty much over. He doesn't, he can't write anymore. He said every time he tries to write, he gets that orange light or something because he can't remember everything. He can't that remember what happens in the room, but he's still plagued with nightmares. And he says that he can't stand to watch the sunset. So he like moves to the coast. Yeah. I think in Jersey, Jersey coast or no Long Island. Sorry, he moves to Long Island. And he can't stand to watch the sunset because of that yellow-orange light. Uh, so he has the recording that he can listen to, but he just – and his publisher won't even listen to it. He keeps the recorder in his That's safe. Right. He tried to convince Mike to write about his experiences in the room, but it's just never going to happen. And and uh, even the, the publisher says that he can't even bring himself to play it for people that would love to hear it because uh, it's so bad. And and also, I love it. Uh, it says that Mike sleeps with his lights on and he's removed all the phones from his house. And he has health ailments. He has physical health ailments. High blood pressure and uh, all kinds of stuff. And, and so it just does not end on a on a great note like he got out but he was unscathed or wasn't unscathed and the sad part is he doesn't quite it's almost a blessing that he doesn't remember but we have this very traumatized person going through the world and that room is still there i mean it's so (laughs) lesson learned there's just a great (laughs) end point which it kind of comes back to what was said earlier where he's like it was never human ghosts at least ghosts were once human so it really brings back to we don't know exactly what this horror, this cosmic horror was, but it ain't right and it ain't human. Yeah. And, you know, so real quick, because it did, it was made into a movie and a fantastic movie, by the way. I, I think this is one of the better adaptations of a King story. Um, it was released in 2007 and it stars, uh, was directed by Swedish filmmaker uh, Michael Hofstrom. I've probably pronounced that incorrectly. Um, so John Cusack and Samuel Jackson who also appeared in another Stephen King adaptation, which is Cell, in 2016. Cusack was in uh, Stand By Me. Yes, yes, exactly. And so, and this movie was very financially successful. It did really well. And I love it because it it adapts the story in a very faithful kind of way, but it also expands on it in ways that show that they really wanted to bring in a lot of King, uh, King's elements. It really understood what King was trying to Mm -hmm. do. And then it added some really fun little Easter eggs at the same time. And one thing that I really, really love that it did, for instance, is that in the movie, uh, John Cusack says into his recorder, the hotel rooms are just naturally creepy places, don't you think? I mean, how many people have slept in that bed before you? How many of them were sick? How many of them were losing their minds? And that was something Stephen King actually wrote in the story notes for this book in Everything's Eventual. You can actually read that. So I have to tell you, I watched that movie. And then as I was reading, I read the short story, I reread it last. And as I was reading his note, I was like, wait a minute, I'm pretty sure John Cusack's character <laughs> says that in the movie. And lo and behold, it great? was. And I was like, oh, Oh, that's great. What a nice little nugget. In the movie, too, like the director, they put so much thought into the tiny little thing. So the DVD runtime is exactly 
104 minutes and Isn't 8 seconds. Great? And also used other things for the number 13, which we already know 1408 adds to 13. The room's key lock has 6214 etched into it, which adds up to 13. Those digits do. Um, the first death was in 1912, which also adds to 13. Also, if you add 19 and 12, you get 31, which is 13 in reverse. And then even the month and year of the movie's release date, June 2007, sums up to 13 because of six and seven. So good. <laughs> which is just funny. I mean, it's just these little things they try to do to make it fit. Also, Olin offers Mike uh, in the movie... And I love Samuel Jackson in this role, by the way. They both did such a good oh, yeah. job. They were having a they were having a great time making this, Most you certainly. can tell. Um he offers uh Mike a bottle of brandy. And it's called Oh god, I can't even well, Le, We don't know uh, French. I'm not even try to pronounce uh, it. Do you want me to Les Cinquante Sept de Cés. Okay, yes. Thank you. He did so much better than I would have. And it literally means the fifty-seven deaths. And just afterwards, we learned that in room 1408, there were only 56 deaths, but it's assumed that Mike was going to be included Which in is a that. good Easter egg that if you don't know French or you didn't pay attention to the bottle, you wouldn't pick up on. I was studying that bottle so hard just to see what yeah. it was because I didn't. I was like, OK, I saw what was cognac. And then I was like, all right, I know what it is, but I didn't notice anything beyond that. So so then another thing that I learned, this is so cool, is uh, toward the end of the film, there's a fireman that breaks down the hotel door at the end. And it's the same axe that Jack Nicholson used in The Shining. So good. It's like, you could tell this has the same touches that a Mike Flanagan or Rob Reiner adaptation has of Stephen King's work where you have a true fan or Frank Darabont, you know, where they not are just adapting this one story. They're adapting King into this movie. It adds another great little element to it as well, where... Obviously, you get more backstory. You get more character development. Yeah. You, you learn about Mike's estranged wife, his daughter who has died under circumstances we don't quite understand. You get a little bit of his dad you can tell was probably in a hospital or a hospice kind of dying. And there was a relationship there. And there's a part early in the movie where he goes out surfing and he kind of misses a wave and it tossles him around and he washes up ashore and he's choking on water and someone comes up to help him. And it's just kind of a throwaway thing you don't think too much about. Well, at the end of the movie, as the room is kind of collapsing in on him, there's a bunch of this water that comes in because there's a painting of a ship. And all of a sudden the room is just getting blasted with water. And you cut to a scene of him washing up on shore. And it gives you that moment where you're like, wait, did he just dream all of this as he's being tumbled around under in the undertow of the water. And it goes back to his normal life and things are fine, but he starts eventually to recognize people in the real world that were people who work at the hotel and suddenly were sucked back in and he never really left. And it's just a, it's a great movie device that I think they did a good job with. They did. They they had me convinced that he actually got out, that it, they were just flashing back. They were flashing right. forward. Like, okay, he got out of the room and this is him dealing with the aftermath and, and all this. And then yes, you, you never escaped when the, when that world starts to bleed back yeah. through, you know, it, it's so beautifully done. And of course, yeah, the 
things that they added about his, you know, his daughter introduces this theme of grief, which is, I think, appropriate for this story, because a lot of people died in this room. So it's it's really, uh, you know, he's in this place of deep tragedy. And he has his own tragedy that the room is trying to exploit. And they, uh, I saw a reference saying that throughout his course of time in that room, which again, was uh, being timed by the bed's alarm clock, and it was playing The Carpenters, We've Only Just Begun, which I never thought that song would be scary. But Especially it is. when it's kind of warm, it's like, it's only just good. Like, it's just like out of oh. like key and yeah. everything. But it so much reminded me of like a very sinister Groundhog's Day where he keeps, <laughs> I got you, babe, from Sunny and Cher. It's almost like this, because it happens a couple times where the, He's just sitting there and the alarm clock blasts. And then eventually it has this like, it stops showing the time and it's a countdown from 60 minutes. Oh, God, it's it's yeah, such a great device. And, you know, the room itself is very different in terms of what it does to him. And you know, it does play with like reality. One of the creepier moments in the oh movie is he's trying to yell across oh the street God. to someone in the office. And then suddenly you realize it's just it's him. a reflection of him. Mm- it's a reflection of him, but it's like a darker version. But then of him. somebody with a knife comes up behind the reflection, and he turns yeah. around, and there's someone coming at him. Oh, that is like yeah. the most ju- like freak out, jump out of your seat moment. It's so good. It's so good, and and it really plays so well as a one man show. I mean, Cusack is throwing his whole self into this, and I brought up the grief thing because they show that Cusack is actually going through all the stages of grief throughout his time in this room. And uh, so it's a brilliant kind of acting out of his personal tragedy and processing that. And then everything that the room is trying to throw at him. And And so it really becomes a man versus, you know, the room kind of situation. And he gets great lines that he says into the recorder. There's one where he comes back into the bathroom and the toilet paper has been refolded in that little like... V-shape that they do. And he's like, finally, yeah. something for me to write about. A ghost that offers turndown service. So he's just being really salty. <laughs> and then he's like, he's still being very um, skeptical. And like, okay, we can logic this way. So he's like, let's encyclopedia brown this bitch. And <laughs> so he's starting to like logic through. And he thinks there's somebody up in the vent in the ceiling. That kind of oh. keeps being this like callback where he thinks they're watching through there. Yeah. And to your earlier point about the story, at one point he's like, wait, he gave me booze. Did Olin take a sip? I can't remember. And then he looks at the bed and he's like, or maybe it's the chocolate. Don't take candy from strangers. He just has these little funny, <laughs> quippy things that he says that I think the um, movie caught a lot better than the mm-hmm. short story. And of course, John Cusack delivers it like flawlessly. It's so good. I mean, he was so perfectly cast for it because in so many movies that he's in, he has that kind of dry charm. Yeah. Um, you know, if, uh, like a movie like uh, Gross Point Blank, for instance, is a movie where he's fully John Cusack uh, in that. And so it's almost like he brought that plus the with the emotional weight of everything else that he's going yeah. through. I love too when the thermostat, uh, the room's really hot, and he literally says to the the maintenance, like the room's on yeah. fire. Yeah, <laughs> like while well, the room when the thermostat's busted and he can't, you know, so, exactly. So there's a lot of beautiful, subtle things in this that really reward multiple watchings. I hadn't actually watched this movie since I saw it in the theater when it came out, so it was really great to revisit this one, and especially after experiencing the short story a lot and just seeing again the beauty 
of what a film adaptation can achieve whenever the person doing the adaptation is so thoughtful and considers the author and in this in in it, which I think is the key to making it work. I think Frank Darabont brought that up as well in his adaptation of Shawshank is he really everything that he added was done considering King's own voice uh, because get busy living or get busy dying. That's a Frank Darabont line, but that sounds exactly like something Stephen King would write. And you get a lot of that in this as well. Before we get to the ending, I, I do have a line I want to mention, uh, which is when he gets pulled back into the room after the fake out, the clock returns to 60 minutes again. Again, kind of Groundhog's Day. He's going to have to relive it. So this hotel operator calls and Mike's like, why have I not been killed yet? And she's like, our guests enjoy free will. You can relive the past hour over and over again or use our express checkout system, which is a noose. <laughs> which is the... Which yes, is again yes. a, a whole invention of this story, but it's it's just this great little device where it takes this idea of a hotel express checkout, but in this case, you hang yourself or you can keep living this nightmare. And much like in the short story trucks, he improvises a Molotov cocktail and burns the room down and eventually is able to escape that way. And I think we're gonna get to the ending that confused the crap out of you. Yeah. So when I saw this in the theater, the ending that I got is the one Chris pretty much explained. It's the default ending. The theatrical release. So you'll also find this used on Amazon Prime, Netflix UK, and the YouTube movies version. And that's where Mike survives. He you know sets the room and himself on fire. He gets out and he and his ex-wife reconcile. And she is skeptical of his experience and eventually they pull out the tape recorder and find on the uh, mini cassette, you know, a, a voice of their daughter um, to kind of like, and that kind of ends on that note of like, Oh my God, this really happened. It was kind of a beautiful ending. I, I, I prefer it. The ending that I saw uh, when I watched this the other night, cause my, uh, I just have a version of it that is um, on my uh, home theater PC and I didn't realize this at the time that there were are multiple endings of this movie. So I was waiting for that moment of Mike getting out. Well, uh, no, he dies in the fire. And uh, Olin shows up at the funeral with a box containing Mike's remaining possessions, like the tape recorder and things like that, and tries to give it to Lily, the wife. And she's like, no, I don't want it. And Olin goes back to his car and sees a very burnt Mike in the back seat <laughs> and then Ola's just like okay so basically he's haunting him. it kind of doesn't make a lot of sense in a way I kind of wish this ending wasn't there it seemed very convoluted and then it cuts back to the ho- burnt down hotel room with Mike in it and then he hears his daughter's voice and he goes off to be with her like he's living in the afterlife but he's in the hotel room but he's not but he's not, yeah. and the room is destroyed, but it's not because Olin tells the wife, well, the room's destroyed, it'll never hurt anyone again. But here's Mike in, in the room as a ghost, smoking a cigarette. I haven't seen this ending, but it doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah, and this is the ending that plays in Canada on various networks. It's also used on FX whenever they show it down here on FX. And it's also used in the UK and Australian DVDs 
and the U.S. iTunes and Netflix versions of the film. So I don't weird. know why the endings are so randomly distributed this way. I know just from my own little insights on how sometimes rights are distributed and licenses are purchased that, you know, different markets get different endings. We had this with like The Descent uh, has two different endings. Paranormal Activity mm. has multiple endings. Depending on what market you're in, you're going to see a different True. one. But then there's the original ending, which they tested this with the studio and they, they didn't like it. And so it was changed. But Mike dies in the fire. And instead of the funeral scene from the director's cut, the sounds of a funeral are dubbed over shots of Los Angeles. Lily and Sam, that's the publisher, uh, sort through Mike's effects. Sam returns to his New York office and discovers the manuscript Mike wrote while he was in the room, which is interesting because we don't see him no, writing a manuscript no. uh, at all. He doesn't have time There's for no that. He's not in there that long. It's so weird. Yeah. And yeah, as, as Sam reads the story, audio from Mike's experiences in the room is heard in a final scene. Sam's office door slams shut and Mike's father, which is again kind of yeah. weird pops up and says as i was you are as i am you will be so what this ending assumes is a there are very probably a lot of multiple scenes that were cut mm. that show maybe mike writing a book in this room and more from mike's father um because we don't get a ton we get the sense that mike and his father had a strained and difficult relationship we do get that quote when he's in the room and he has a vision of his Father, he we do get that same quote, but why would he be coming after Sam? Like it just these two alternate endings don't make any sense. No, they don't. And I feel kind of sad for the alternate markets that are I this original ending isn't anywhere from what I understand, which is good, but the the ending that is in multiple like Australia, UK, um, I'm kind of sad that that's the ending because I feel like the theatrical ending is the best I one i feel like it it is it's maybe not as ambiguous as a typical stephen king ending um it in fact it has a lot more resolution that way but i feel like it fits the story and these characters better and it gives mike a reward for everything that he went through in the sense of you know he's reconciling with his wife and he can get some closure and and kind of deal with the grief for me it's just a logical conclusion and like right and it's yes and it makes sense. like back when we talked <laughs> about the mist what i didn't like about the movie ending is it it was just too ham-fisted like it wasn't necessarily the ending itself it was how it was executed and this one is just like it just feels like a sloppy joe ending not and it's not for the movie we got you're right maybe there's an extended cut where it makes more sense but clearly the version you watched did not add enough back in for this ending to really logically make sense whereas again the theatrical release ending does have an internal logic to it and so that's, I think, why I like it. If they left a more ambiguous ending that stayed true to the room and how it operates, I'd be all for that. I, there's a great ambiguous ending at the end of the descent in the um, the more like the UK non-US version. It's fantastic, but it makes sense. And in this case, this just doesn't. Yeah, yeah. This definitely feels like a deleted scene that should have been left deleted yeah. um, instead. So yeah, it, two really fantastic stories from this collection 
and make it worth buying this collection alone. But I tell you, there are so many fantastic stories in this. And uh, so this these were our two favorites. I mean, we said it was a mini episode, but hey, you know, this is mini for us. I told you it'd be a full episode, Allison. <laughs> There's too much good stuff to talk about. There really is. And uh, so we hope you all go out and check this one out. And you know, What's that? when you add up all the episodes, including the bonus oh, ones... No. It equals 13. 13. What? <laughs> wah, wah, wah. That was rather uh, not intentional. I never expected that I would have an episode on the stand. So that was a, a little surprise on my end that I, I had someone come through that wanted to record with me on that. So that's how we kind of got there. And thank you to David Cassie for joining me on that one, because that was a blast. You need so. to edit this episode down to one hour, four minutes, eight seconds. <laughs> You know, I'm going to make that or a goal, 1084. Chris. So. You can play a little bit. Give us a couple extra minutes. <laughs> I agree. I agree. We'll get 13 either so way. <laughs> All right, guys. Well, I'm going to wrap this up here. And as always, thank you for joining us. And head on over to 80s High and check out Chris. Review us both on iTunes. You know, we need some love. We need some exposure. Yeah. Yeah, we would really, really love that. Uh, feel free to reach out to me at Gmail, DD Darkness Time, or on Twitter, same handle, DD Darkness Time, Instagram, samezies. All right, guys. Well, talk to you later. Have a good night. Sleep well in your haunted orange rotten fruit room. <laughs> as I was, you are. As I am, you will be. <laughs> I live in the weak and oh. the wounded. Okay, that's different, different oh. title, but you know, we sh- <laughs> still chills, still chills. Ding Dong Darkness Time has been brought to you and produced by yours truly, Allison Dixon. It was made possible by an array of amazing co-hosts, friends, family, but especially you, the listeners. Big shouts also go out to the brilliant Nathaniel Dixon for the show art and future legend Spencer Morlock for all the music. I'll be back again soon with another episode. In the meantime, be good, you little ding-dongs. <laughs>